Howdy all, welcome back to Seeking God in the Whirlwind, which is something that um, Dr. Draper and myself started up a couple weeks ago. You may have seen some of our previous interviews uh, with some other LBC faculty and a pair of missionaries that work down um, in Latin America. Um, this is, we're coming to the end of this. We were hoping to do um, at least a month long series at the end of the semester for the students, faculty, whoever else is interested to see how our faculty, our leadership are grappling with the problems associated with the COVID crisis. And Mark, I don't know about you, but this has been eye-opening for me. I think I went in excited about conversations, but I've learned a lot. I'm um, probably more humble than I, than I was when I came into it. Um, but it's been, it's been a really great conversation. We, we probably have, what, one more, one more to do? I think we have one more to do. We're going to uh, <clears throat> sit down with some students. Uh, and then the last one is kind of the, the wrap-up, kind of what did we learn? Right. So we'll do, we'll do a student interview, and then Mark and I will tell you what two historians are learning about the present, which ought to be a, a good conversation, I think. Today, I'm excited. We've got one of our uh, faculty members from our Philadelphia campus, uh, JL Chambers, with us today. Um, and I was privileged to be on the, uh, at least the council that uh, went through the final interview with JL, so that was my chance to meet him. Um, but he is our coordinator for the CML, that's Christian Ministry Leadership uh, Department, uh, out at the Philadelphia campus for Lancaster Bible College. And he also uh, runs a company called Cultured Enough that does diversity audits uh, for companies and corporations and churches, and then develops strat uh, strategic plans for how to, uh, how to address um, the weaknesses in, in the audit. So, JL, welcome. Uh, we're really thank excited. You, thank to have you. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Great people. Feels good. <laughs> well, thank you, JL. <laughs> Appreciate that. We're, uh, we're trying our best here. Um, Maybe you could tell us, because your, your background is very exciting um, and interesting. You, you were originally born in L.A., and then you've sort of traveled around. Can you give us a little taste of what your background is like, your work, your work history? Yes, yes, I'll do. I'll give a little uh, sample, like okay, this, uh, a little bit of a sample, not the main entree. Uh, born in the 88, uh, 1988, so in Los Angeles, California, in a place called Compton. Uh, quickly, when I was 15, moved to Portland, Oregon. So I, I like to joke around taking a kid from... Los Angeles, Compton, the first community and placing uh, them into Portland, Oregon. And if you don't know about Portland, Oregon, it uh, is opposite of, of Los Angeles and then especially for Compton, for Compton kid. Uh, and so went to, to high school, enjoyed it, went to a, a Quaker college, George Fox University, had a full ride scholarship to that college, a leadership scholarship, because they were designed to seek and increase diversity. Uh, and I was one of the individuals who got the scholarship. Worked in higher ed when I graduated at another Christian college of retaining first generation college students. Mm -hmm. uh, found it being a joy. I was a first generation college student. Uh, and just realizing that there are a lot of things that I didn't realize I had to navigate. Uh, even the understanding of FAFSA, uh, mm -hmm. preparing for your first day of school. And I realized I was the only one and my parents didn't show up to drop their things off. So things that I just felt like I was navigating how to help first generation college students uh, thrive so they didn't have to experience some of the things that I had to go through. Uh, and then moved to Philadelphia around eight years ago to get my master's degree in urban studies, so focus on cultural psychology. So I do a lot of stuff looking at organizations, especially the culture that they do, and specifically primarily white uh, structures when it comes to increasing diversity or wanting to have diversity, uh, so school structures. Um, and then, yeah, run my own business with a few of my business partners, enjoying it, especially when it comes to helping churches. That's sort of why we started was that we just felt this calling that we wanted to help churches that wanted to be diverse or wanted to impact their community and didn't know the practical steps to do that outside of reading a few good books. Hmm. That's great. So you were, you were hired uh, for the Philly campus. This is, is this two years now? Uh, a year. 
Really? Okay. Yeah. 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 A year. So I t- also oh, back backdrop. I, I was I taught there for two years and then uh, sort of took a more position to help out with some of the stuff happening at the Philadelphia. Right. Right. Oh, that's great. So so um, you're you're working with you're working with several churches then in Philadelphia um, as well as companies or or industries. Yes. Yes. So we work with uh, a, a multiple churches, bigger sized churches. Uh, and then companies and Christian organizations. So that's really our niche. So we exist uh, for companies that can't afford a full-time chief diversity officer. And right. we do that at an affordable price, uh, specific training, support, development. Uh, when it comes to churches, you know how they sort of develop. Rarely do a, does a big church have the support or even maybe the expertise in thinking about strategically reaching new populations, uh, how they develop their leaders, and how they go out to serve the city, which that's why I live in Philadelphia. Hmm. So we're we're doing we're we're focusing on in, in our previous conversations we've talked about the growing complexities um, in our society or at least we're becoming aware that there are complexities and difficulties but the COVID is how we started this conversation and from your perspective your vantage point what's what's the impact that this is having on minority populations what what are some of the what are some of the big markers that this is having a negative impact yeah and so I want to echo I think what everyone would say it. And I agree, it's, ha- it's having an impact on everyone except probably the 1% in some way. Uh, somehow the organizations that are actually making more money <laughs> at this time than before. Uh, but then with any, yeah, yeah, right. But with any population, it starts to expose. So a lot of what we talk about uh, and we said before, and I like to mention that some of the things we're seeing were already there currently. However, mm-hmm. it's being sort of added, uh, added more steroids to it to expose it. And so one example is that we already are aware of the unemployment rate for certain minority groups and how that's just doubled or tripled just because of the hourly job that they have uh, and they don't have salary jobs. Um, another thing is just the impact when you think of colleges. Uh, so some students can go home uh, and other students, uh, they have to think about what home looks like, should mm-hmm. they go home uh, and how they might ha- now have to work while they're at home uh, and in a house maybe of five to six people in a row home. And if you know Philadelphia, uh, it's not one of those places where five or six people in one house is a comfortable spot. Um, mm. It actually is very packed. And so it's, it's exposing a lot of things. I mean, it's even exposing for churches, how do we love our neighbors? Uh, how do we not think about just the four walls? Uh, mm. And what does it look like to invite people that are around you that might have never attended your church before? And now you can just talk to them and say, there's a link. Uh, mm. Here's how the church service is. And so I think COVID-19 uh, and I say this in a lot of ways, is allowing us to sort of see the reality of what is what was there and what God was already seeing. Uh, mm. We just get another sneak peek uh, in a deeper level of some of the brokenness uh, that the world we're living in and the disparities of what that looks like too. I like I like that you say it it gives us a better vision of what God already saw. I think that's a nice perspective because it reminds us that truth isn't what we see; truth is what God sees. And um, yeah, we, we tend to be blind, I mean, and not that other churches don't have real problems, but they're only looking at the problems they see. Um, do, do you think that in, in this moment, there's a real opportunity then for the church to, to move forward, to, to become more vocal, uh, have a better presence in its communities uh, because of this? Yes, uh, I do. Uh, that's the quickest, the best, as I can say, I do. Just because, I mean, I think with anything, when you see... I look through the scripture, especially the New Testament. Most people, when you see people flock around uh, Jesus, most of them didn't even come for what he was bringing, except the healing or the sort of that sort of concept. Uh, 
Uh, and I think this is a time to know there's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of people who uh, need spiritual healing, emotional healing, uh, physical healing, and financial healing. And so I think the church, especially if you think about the impact of who's in the church uh, and what they bring, could be a great opportunity to, to do that well. Uh, I think it's hard just because historically uh, we have not done the best job. And I'll put we because I'm a part of the church. We just have not done the best job and to sort of stop and say, how do we love our neighbors well? Uh, who's the widows? Who's the least of these? Uh, and I say that, especially in a place like Philadelphia, where you're looking at a city that uh, has high unemployment rates, has high uh, incarceration rates, have high, I mean, when you think of people who work nine to fives, this is a blue collar city. Most people outside of the Fairmount and uh, downtown area is working a nine to five job. And so for them, they have a higher chance of catching COVID-19. Mm. Yeah, let, let me let me let's look at that. I think you you bring such a unique perspective because you're working not necessarily in a particular neighborhood in Philadelphia. You're working across the city, uh, and and and, I, and Will Smith and I have something in common. We're both Philly born and raised, so I know I I, I got a pretty good sense of. Yeah. What I, I, I thought you were going to say y'all played basketball back in the day. <laughs> oh yeah, just not together because that's what you did in the summer. You I you that I get that song. That's what we did. You know, we didn't. We didn't play it virtually on Nintendo. We actually played the game. And, um, but can you speak a little bit to uh, the nature of Philly? Because it, it, you said once you're out of certain neighborhoods, but those neighborhoods aren't that far apart. Yeah. Um, you know, so the, you, the, can you explain a little bit the city dynamics, how, you know, you, you could have somebody on one block, who is uh, on the front lines of COVID because of their nine to five and the people next block over have food delivered from Whole Foods. Yes, yes. And I'll say this, I'm not a Philly native, but what's interesting is that growing up in LA has taught me just the, I, I, I would say I got my PhD in just urban culture and mm -hmm. what that looks like just because of seeing, being aware of things. And Philadelphia is one of the most fascinating cities I've ever seen. Here's why uh, you hit on the head. Philly is a block by block city mm. in some ways. So, and then there's also sort of a divide. So you can sort of look at West North Philadelphia center city and you can look at that and say, most Latinx Hispanic individuals are in North Philadelphia Huntington Park area. Uh, and however, then you start to go down to Temple you start to realize how that starts to change and who's there. And most kids who might go to school in that area don't live in that area uh, because they can't afford it. And then North Philadelphia, uh, West Philadelphia is more African-American. Uh, why that's important is this, uh, there's some areas where uh, the Fairmounts, uh, the Northern Liberties, uh, some parts of the Kensington downtown, where because of housing, you have people that are your neighbors or a couple blocks down that, uh, or de that are nine to five workers uh, and that have to, because uh, of their jobs, work and deliver food. Uh, and then the next block down, you hit on the head, you have people who uh, are grateful enough, and this isn't to guilt, uh, where they can work from home. They have their laptops, their jobs are remote. Uh, what's fascinating is that uh, rarely do we see those disparities in the neighborhood. Usually it's like, okay, I live around people who are all like me. Uh, but Philadelphia is fascinating because you're starting to see, like, I have people, like, I have neighbors who have to work on the front lines, uh, who go in. I see them in the morning go in. Uh, and then I have other people who can stay at home, uh, hang out, walk their dog, enjoy it. And I think that's one of the things where it reminds me of, of the humanness of, of where we have an opportunity to see the people around us. And so there is a sense of, uh, I can say to myself a simple thing like this, well, I don't have to worry about it 
but then there's this truth of like, well, should I think about it when I think my neighbors have to wake up and they're going to do a job that is essential or, or essential for them to pay their bills? Mm-hmm. And the other thing I wanted you to, to speak about is, um, we talked a little bit about this offline, but I think it's really helpful to, to understand the pandemic in an urban context. And, and, and by urban, I mean a city. city yeah. You know, yeah. not the code word for urban, you know, the, a city. Uh, opposed to rural, opposed to suburban. Um, can you talk a little bit about how the neighborhoods have changed in Philadelphia and how that has affected uh, people in those communities? So the gentrification and, and how that would affect something as simple as getting groceries for your family and, and what that, how that is intensified when you have a pandemic on your hands. Yes, and so the best, you said it very well. When we think of urban, we're thinking of a dense populated place with over 500 or so people. Uh, we know sometimes we think of urban, we think of a black or brown, but we're saying for Philadelphia, you're a dense population. So just work with me for this imagination. When you're living in a community, you know, I know the local store, uh, I have, uh, the stores, I know the store's prices, it's very affordable. Uh, I can go to the laundromat. Uh, and when the thing about gentrification, when people come in, they also come in not just with themselves, but they come in with their, uh, their taste and their styles and what they enjoy. Uh, and, and so in the midst of that, you start to see a lot of places like the Whole Foods, uh, places like Trader Joe's. Uh, Trader Joe's is pretty cheap depending who you ask. Uh, and so what's challenging is now you have people who can't afford to go to to Whole Foods, because uh, it's a whole paycheck, like you said before. Mm-hmm. But what's challenging in, in, the, in this season, think about Whole Foods is already packed, but now it's actually people are stacking up. So they're buying a month's worth of groceries. Uh, most people can't buy, if you're not aware, a month's worth of groceries. It's pay, week by week. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when they go to the store, there's nothing there. So now they have to take a 45 minute to an hour bus trip. Uh, they might not have a car. Which also puts them at risk now for COVID. Yes, to a grocery store, uh, wait in line, go back, put them in. So now that half of their day is literally traveling to get something that they used to have in their community. Uh, And then even taxes, things that I think for some of us, we we forget that for the average person who's surviving paycheck to paycheck, COVID-19 is very challenging in so many ways. And then on top of that, say if you were working and you're not, now your kids are at home. Uh, and you're having to teach your kids while you're trying to figure out work and feed them. Uh, and now you have to provide four, three meals out of the day instead of typically you provide just dinner, and then the kid gets the meal from breakfast and lunch at school. Now you're providing three meals, and that means your grocery bills are going up, you're spending more time, and you're trying to teach your kids uh, because the internet isn't the best and the school has to provide the right resources. Jail, help us. The, the, the... The byline for our little podcast is that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, yeah. trying to navigate the city of man. We're trying to negotiate. We're trying to make decisions here, and we're trying to live faithfully by the other kingdom. So, how help help me as a you know I live in Lancaster in a little suburban area. How, how do I navigate this? How how do I how do I um, address these problems in these situations? How what, what, what's my responsibility here? Yeah, uh, and so I think there's a few things to process. First is to pray. Uh, and I mean, and I'm, I'm going to give other things. Let's not just stay at pray, like pray, but let's get, so pray because I feel like each one of us has uh, our own specific uh, convictions, what we, what we should think about and who we should serve. Uh, but then as Christians, uh, I think that another question is, 
are we just aware of what's happening outside of our circle? Uh, mm. Like the little question, like, are we aware of what's happening right now in Minnesota? Are we aware of what's happening right now uh, with how Asian American communities are being treated? Uh, are we aware of what's happening? Um, and here's one thing that I would say highlight. Uh, I think when 9-11 happened, uh, that was a unified across the board. I think we all remind ourselves that this impacts us all, even though some of us were not in the building, uh, right. but we're still impacted. If we had that posture more with other things, I think we would be great. So as Christians, I would say, uh, if you're in Lancaster or wherever you're at, uh, I think we do have to have a posture of empathy. Uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm hurtful, honestly, uh, when any of my brothers and sisters, especially a group of them, uh, have something happen to them. Uh, I'm, I just have this desire because I believe that that's close to God's heart. And the second thing is that I don't know that many communities out there statistically that are 90 something percent all of one ethnic or racial group. Uh, yeah, there's, yeah. A, there's a sense of diversity or a sense of social economic differences. Uh, I think sometimes we, because we're around people that are like that, that we assume that that's everything around us. And mm -hmm. that's honestly, in a lot of ways, not true. And so as Christians, here's, some, here's something practical. Pray about it. Uh, ask yourself this question. Uh, does my work environment create spaces uh, where these dialogues are happening? Uh, I might not have friends that way, but does my work, do I go into a work environment where there are people that maybe are struggling, uh, social economic differences? Uh, does my church uh, have a church uh, community around the block that maybe is uh, going through some of these struggles? So that's why I, I would say, and then ask yourself this question, uh, as Christians, are we called in general to think about our neighbors? I can't tell you how far your neighbors are down the block, five miles, 10 miles. Uh, but it's interesting when people sort of try to ha-ha trip Jesus and be like, well, who's my neighbor? He had to remind them of a bigger picture. And so I think for us, uh, we just have to ask that question and, and pray and seek God and then also make some practical, uncomfortable steps because it's going to be uncomfortable doing anything that's new and that we haven't done enough. That's great. And I, you know, there's, there's two things I took away from things you said, and I have <laughs> publicly to say here that, you know, you're, uh, now a year ago, I just discovered uh, when you came to LBC in your interview, um, the, the, one of the questions raised was, how do we at this college, how can we contribute to the dialogue? You were talking about race tensions and race issues. And you said something that just stuck with me um, since then. I've repeated it multiple times. And that is that we have the vocabulary of lament. And I, I think what, since ever since you said that, I've been rehearsing even in my own church life, how rarely we actually partake in that, right? We, they say, well, that's happening over there. It's not happening here, I'll wait for something. But what you're saying is we, we need to look more broadly at the body of Christ and human condition and find opportunities to lament. Is that, is that a fair way of saying it? Yeah, I mean, word became fleshed and dwelt among us. Uh, and, and I say it because there's a beauty of, of Jesus didn't have to. <laughs> <laughs> he could have stayed perfectly with the Father and just chilled and he dwelt. And I think that's one of the hardest parts being a Christian is sometimes us forgetting that we used to be far off. Mm -hmm. uh, so the same people, it's, I mean, think about it, the same things we used to do before we accepted Christ. Now we said we look down on people and say, I can't believe they do that. I can't. Mm -hmm. And we're like, yo, that used to be us. Uh, let's not forget, like Paul talks about enough, like let's not forget. And I think uh, you hit on the head is how do we just have a posture of lament? Uh, and, and, and in the Bible, it says a big thing. Reconciliation uh, is, two, is, is two sides. Uh, you can forgive someone. Reconciliation is the person who's hurt you and then the person that you hurt forgiving each other and then coming together to say, how do we reconcile to go about doing this well? Uh, mm -hmm. And so I just think that 
for us, that's a part of reconciliation, lamenting. And lamenting is uncomfortable, especially uh, if you weren't raised to weep, uh, if you weren't raised to talk about your emotions, if you were not raised to uh, address uncomfortable and hard topics. Yeah, that's, that's great. And I think Mark, Mark has said before, Mark and I, because we both did our dissertations in the same area, which is uh, evangelical Christian reforms. I said I wasn't going to say the 19th century. Now I'm saying fine in the 19th century. But, but the idea was that I think what we've both found in this, Kale, I'm interested in your, your take on it because it's important to the life of the church, that the church probably at one time was far more engaged in these issues. Maybe not always the race issue, although, although it was evangelical churches in the Ohio River Valley and you know, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, that were the first to address, you know, seriously ideas of yes. slavery. So, so the church has been in the forefront. But, but we have this tension in the church where churches that really, and I think, Mark, you had said it, they get the gospel right, and you do the preaching and the exegesis of scripture, but don't address these other issues that we need to pay attention, how we love our neighbor. And the churches or, or, or traditions that tend to focus an awful lot on loving our neighbor have not always done a good job of really preaching the truth of the gospel. So we need to do both of these, right? So how do we, how do, we do both of them? We have churches that come together. Uh, honestly, like I think the beauty is if you have a church that's trying to figure that out and you have a church that is trying to figure that out, people, what we do is say, I want to plant a new church. Well, why? <laughs> I mean, honestly, why? Why don't you bring your young millennial, millennial church with the older church? Because if you come together, you're talking about one word and one deed now you're coming together and it's so practical and doing both and i feel like i always thought like the beauty of the the church especially when i've been to many churches that are historically white is that the theology uh is so crisp uh and then sometimes when i look at their practical and what they're doing throughout the year uh how they're figuring like how this how their budgets are over two million dollars and how, how they're giving money away doesn't sort of connect with the behaviors uh, doesn't connect with like, hey, if we're, we're saying we're going to love our neighbors, why have none of, no one in the church went down to see some neighbors? Uh, uh, went, went down to like, why have we not brought another pastor in that's our neighbor to preach at the pulpit? Uh, why? So those are the things I think we do have to figure out uh, as a church is how do we do that well? Uh, how do we have a posture of working with other people that do stuff different? And it's all right that they do stuff different. And yeah. Dale, do you, do you think, I was thinking what you're saying, Dan, I'm wondering, Dan, you said, well, we get the gospel right. And I wonder, uh, there was such an emphasis in the 19th century. Uh, I didn't say I wasn't going to say 19th century. <laughs> that was only me. Um, uh, there was such an emphasis in the 19th century that, uh, I mean, to the point where sometimes it was odd. You know, there was almost an altar call for salvation and an altar call for the abolition society, and one was right after the other. Um, but there really was this idea because of the drive for holiness that there, there should be some tangible representation that there's a changed life. Right. And, and generally what people would do is they join a, a track society, a temperance society, an abolitionist society. We got it. Um, but today it seems like oftentimes, particularly in the evangelical world, salvation can be, well, I'm saved. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I have my personal salvation, which is true. But I wonder if part of the problem is that we, we have a thinned out gospel. Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm glad I'm on this call with you too, because you know more. I would say that's for sure. I mean, if you even think about how we think of, of tithing, if we think about when we sing songs so much and we say me, 
uh, Lord, you came for me. And there's some truth to that. But if you keep saying me forgot and you forget about us, uh, you, you start to forget the like, hey, let's understand that uh, we're called, once you start to understand the beauty of the church is like, it's not no longer about your individual self. Following Jesus is no longer about your individual self. It's about the body. And I think that's something that it's easy to forget if you grew up believing that Jesus came for you, he came for you, and he did. But also, like, he's thinking about the bigger picture, and that's one of the tensions what I've learned uh, and had to figure out is how do I move from an individual to a collective, like the church, the body, not just the church I go to on Sunday, but there's an actual church that my brothers and sisters across the world go to. Am I just aware of that? Hmm. That's, that's really helpful, Joe, because I, I, I was thinking about that, uh, in a, and I do this now in my church, and I, people start looking at me funny, but when those songs come up, I typically replace the singular with the plural. You know? You'll say, you're singing it wrong. I go, actually, I, I think I'm singing it right. Um, but you're right. I, I think that that's what plagues us, is that we, yeah, we've, we've got an individual approach, and I think that's helpful, Mark. The gospel becomes that individual thing rather than corporate. And there's another piece, JL, which I, I think becomes really problematic in that things are so politicized, right? So if you take a certain stand on an issue in a church, and I remember I was at a, teaching a Sunday school class, and I, I asked at one point, it's the church I attend now, and I said, I said, if, if a welfare program feeds a young family, is that, is that a good thing? And people were very uncomfortable, and they're like, well, that's welfare, it's not teaching. I said, no, it's not, don't, don't ask the political question. You've got a human being that has food, where yesterday they did not have food, right? But, it, but it's so tied up in the political idea that it's really hard for some people to say, you're just you're just grandstanding for a political position. Yeah, yeah, that and so that's the importance of biblical. So that's the, I think honestly the point of understanding the biblical, bi- the Bible, like understanding that because uh, it's a valid response for anyone to say I think that's political or I think that's unbiblical. And then you realize Acts did some of that when they started. Like Acts was like where are the widows at, who's going to care for them, uh, and created programs and, and 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 the structure of it. The church, the pastors didn't stop things. They said who's passionate about this, let's make sure we still share the gospel and still yeah. care about the people around us in our proximity. And, and even this concept of biblical justice, uh, I think is so much when people say, oh, we're talking about race or we're talking about uh, justice, it's not biblical. I like to say, well, let's honestly just look through the Bible and how many times do you see the word justice and then how many times do you see the word righteousness? Because mm-hmm. uh, they're tied so close together <clears throat> in so many ways that for us as Christians, we assume that Paul, when Paul was talking with Peter, that wasn't a, a, a ethnic issue. Yeah. It wasn't an ethnic issue when Peter changed his posture when the Gentiles pulled up. We, I mean, it's weird. We throw that out. I'm like, hey, they're actually dealing with it. I mean, most of the New Testament was a part of like, yo, now what's it like for Jews and Gentiles to interact with each other, to submit? That was like, that's ethical. That's family differences coming together. And I find that fascinating that I've been to churches and the pastor will read these scriptures but not talk about there's some differences because of family traditions, uh, beliefs and values. And so it's gonna be hard to come together, but we have the gospel. So how do we interact with our brothers and sisters who look different than us, who, who's a Jew or a Gentile? Right. Jill, help me with this posture. Um, so we, we're, this, Dan has brought up this idea of this negotiation that we're trying to get at, you know, how to negotiate the kingdom of man. And, there's a reality to some of this that I think if our citizenship's in the kingdom of God, we have to realize we're not going to get this. We're, we're not going to get complete justice or yes. uh, to, to kind of use Reinhold Niebuhr's term, we can get approximate justice. <laughs> yeah. um, 
And, but, but help us think through this because I think the other response to this is, well, then why bother? Yeah. Um, help us think through what's a healthy relationship with, hey, listen, we realize our hope is in the not yet. Yeah. Um, and, and, but, but that does not mean we necessarily throw up our hands and say, oh, well. Yeah, and that's a good, like, that's a real tension because it's, it's this concept of we have hope for the unseen uh, and we end up, and we think about that. And so I think of this real beautiful picture of when it talks about the new heaven and new earth. Uh, and then also realizing, hey, I'll never get to the point where I'll experience the fullness of Imago Day. I don't think I'll ever get to the point where people will see me the way God sees me on earth. Mm. Uh, just because of the reality of the brokenness of sin. Uh, however, I think it's, it's sad if we say, well, why not try? Why not uh, try to have a place where people can experience a small taste of what heaven mm -hmm. will look like? Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Why not try to create places where, it's, I mean, that's a beautiful part about like education. <laughs> like if we believed a freshman student that came in who was not on the same path, if we just gave up on that freshman student in the freshman year, we would, we know, like I've seen students, I'm like, ah, I don't know. And then they're seeing you, they're like, wow. This student is like, I'm thankful. And I feel like that's one of the things for me I'm learning is like, it's not my call to pick and choose who I should, who I should give up on. It's called, it, God just calls me to love. Uh, yeah. And then some people will get in and don't. And so I think the hardest part as Christians is sometimes we can depend on the heaven so much where our posture is, well, I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to sit here and enjoy the luxury of, of not. And I'm so thankful Jesus when he came on earth, didn't just go through the easy parts when he was walking through. Well, I'm not going to go to the well. I'm not, you know, I'm not even going to go to the cross. That's hard in itself. So I'm going to just like hop out of here. And I think that's one of the things where we have to get better at, especially, uh, especially I think our white brothers and sisters who are passionate. And if you're a college student, I'm going to say, if you're a college student uh, and you're seeing how the world is going, and I know most college students, white, black, Hispanic, looking at the world and saying there needs to be a change. Uh, they're not satisfied because when they start to have kids, they're going to say, I don't want my kids to be in an environment where people get treated this way. I don't want my kids to be in an environment where uh, they have to worry about walking down the street. Uh, I don't want my kids to be in an environment where they have to wear masks uh, just to go to school. Uh, that means that something has to change. Uh, and we have to do things. Even if it's not going to come, we still should have the posture of working towards something. But, you know, you, you said something, Jalen, there. And this is, I always wrestle with this as a historian because you see lots of people making really good attempts. And as Mark said, they don't work, right? And it, it, it doesn't mean that the attempts weren't, weren't noble or weren't even God-centered. Um, but we don't do them because we think we're going to create a heaven on earth. But, you know, you, you, you raise the word love. And, I, and I, the idea of love doesn't mean that the outcome is guaranteed. But love means that the person next to you will be loved. And it, mm -hmm. is that, does, that, does that help give us a focal point for how to act if we're not, you know, we're not going to solve poverty eternally for everyone, but we can love our neighbor. I mean, is that, is it, that's just that simple. It, and I want to, yes, it is. And then also I th I'm reading this book called At Atomic Habits. Uh, and it's so fascinating because if our outcome is to, to say, I want to lose weight, uh, then we're going to work towards that. And when rarely are you satisfied, but you lose weight and what happens, you gain the weight back. Right. But if it's an identity change, I want to be a healthy person. I want to be an athlete. You and I think that's the truth is like, we sometimes assume that, these changes have to be big. These changes have to be wide. I'm like, if you take, if you do a change every day, 
if you, if every day, if you decide to say, hey, I'm going to get up and I'm going to do one thing small, but also going to make, if you do that every day, your chances of seeing a, the snowball effect, like the Dave Ramsey, when it comes to money is huge. Uh, and so I tell young people this all the time, hey, you might not change the world, but can you change your household? Hmm. Can you change, can you change your friend circle? Can you change the, how you interact with your coworkers? Yes. That is beautiful. We assume that everyone needs to be the MLK, the Mother Teresa. Everyone needs to be the... And I'm like, that's not where everyone should be. Control what you can control. And at this moment, in COVID, you only can really control your household and when you're on a Zoom call. <laughs> well, you know, this goes to something, Mark, that we heard from LinkedIn's. It is. Uh, in a previous interview, which, which he said, yeah, every... In the self-fulfillment culture, everybody's trying to, like, identify, I'm the person that's going to go do this. And she said, really, God's called us to the little things. God's put people in front of you. And I... I got this quote from Michael Novak in his book, No One Sees God. And right towards the beginning, he says, don't go looking for a more exotic neighbor than the ones you already have. He said, I guarantee you there's someone around you that annoys you. There's someone around you you don't understand. There's someone around you suffering. And rather than looking far off to solve the world's problems, reach out to that one neighbor. And I, I think that's what you're saying. Because right? I think you had said things like, you've said things before, like proximity matters, right? Like who's in your proximity? Huge. So I have, so with everything happening uh, with, uh, how black bodies in general, the injustice we're seeing uh, and just racial tension. Uh, I have friends that are Hispanic, Latinx, uh, Asian, white, uh, close friends. Like they were in my wedding. We, we went to high school, we went to college together, we lived mm -hmm. together for almost half of my life that are different than me. Uh, that's what I can control. I mean, I could probably have a good podcast and try to say, I'm gonna go on Instagram and live, but I send a, a simple text message to my friends uh, two days ago uh, with the, uh, and said, hey, I know that we went through life together and we talked about this, but I hope, hopefully that we're having these conversations in our household with our kids just about the world and how, even though it doesn't affect us, in, around this household, it still is affecting someone. And, they, and, those, and those people are children of God. And I said an article, a small little article, how do you talk to your kids about race in the Bible? Uh, how do you use biblical? And that was like, I mean, I know people are like, well, Jill, you can like, because you're a diversity consultant, why don't you do a trait? I'm like, you know who I'm gonna have the biggest impact on? My friends who know me, who I love, who I can see and talk to in Skype. Uh, I just don't think that I need to focus on so much of the big platform if I have people around me that uh, God's placed in my proximity. Jill, you said, sorry. No, Jill, you said something that I thought was really helpful. You, you said that, um, you used this expression, taste of heaven. Um, and and. And I wonder, I'm thinking through this, is can the churches doing the things you're doing, you're, you've just described there, like we're doing the little things. We're, we're you know, if, if God's called us to Northern Liberties, then we're going to serve Northern Liberties. We're not worried about the, you know, we're not going to try to take up poverty in the entire Delaware Valley. You know, we're, we're going to address what's right in our, in our scope. And, and, and I wonder, too, if, if the appeal is if the churches in these areas, individuals working together in their circle, can actually give people an imperfect as it be, because it's being managed by fallen people, yeah. a, a taste of heaven, an imperfect taste of heaven. Um, I, I wanted to see what you thought, is if that's where you were going with this. Yeah, and I, I would say, I think there's more, I mean, we're married, we know, and if you're not married, like there, when you're in intimate relationships, you get the, honestly, sometimes you get the best pieces of like, wow, this is amazing. Like I'm vulnerable, uh, I'm not ashamed. Uh, I can be honest and we're, we're connecting with each other uh, if it's friends. 
that's what the church and a lot if you're in if you're in the church should be doing you should be exposing your brokenness in a safe environment where you're going to be reminded of your your identity in god and sort of go through that sanctification process it's hard to it's hard to give people a taste of of relationships and what god talks about in the bible if you're not in relationships with people like so it's hard to do honestly with with the laptops and stuff it's hard for people this isn't what church is in some ways <laughs> right. and so people are like well i miss what'd you say hardly anyways i mean yes and so and but we assume that okay i can get the taste of uh, of that community a taste of relationships uh on a zoom call and i'm like no you you can't take shortcuts to experiencing that relationship. You can't take shortcuts in experiencing when your brother or sister comes to you and is crying and weeping uh, because of the whole two years you had before to build that relationship. Now you get a chance. You can't take a shortcut when a principal comes to your, to your church and says, hey, you've been faithful for five years. We would love to partner with you so you can come and, and, and help our school get better. Uh, that's what I'm saying. Like You start to realize it's bigger than the church and you start to impact the communities around you. I think that's one of the things that's so beautiful when you have the community go to the church and ask the church questions, say, hey, we want you to be on a panel. We want your church members to come help us out because we're struggling. That's so beautiful because that shows that you have a relationship and you've been walking in that relationship and that process with them. Well, that's, that's great because I think we're, this is the week of the, of the, the crisis surrounding George, George Floyd's uh, murder. And, um, you know, what struck me about a lot of the church conversations, and I think you, you had said this previously, is that, you know, once the crisis happens, then we start talking, um, which is in a sense too late, right? I mean, we, if, if we're not building these relationships, if we're not reaching out to vulnerable people, then when a crisis comes, we've almost lost the ability to speak into this. Is that true? Yeah. Well, it's pretty, I mean, think about it. Most of the time we talk about incidents that happen, we say, how can we have done something to stop that incident? Uh, so we do pre-things like, let's do this before. I, there's some signs that if we were aware in general that a group of people have not seen fair justice or a, a, in a, in a, in a, whatever you say, they, they're a group of people who are frustrated. They're not feeling like they're hurt. They feel like they don't have trust. They feel like, so there's like, a, and it's nothing new. If you understand in 1992, there was riots. Uh, and for the people who are young on this podcast, just look up the, the riots in LA and across the US in 1992. And Go so back to Watts in 68. Yes, yeah. and Watts in 68. So you're seeing these, I mean, and if we're older, you start to see like, hmm, this isn't new. Hmm, that isn't new. And it's really saying, when I think about it, is that like, when you don't hear a population of people, uh, in whatever way you say, like, they become frustrated. Uh, and that's a human tendency. That's a human tendency. If I walk anywhere in class and my teacher never calls me and I raise my hand, I'm gonna get frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> but we sometimes forget that that's an emotion that people go through. And sometimes you say, well, I'll never do that. Or that wouldn't be me. And I'm saying that could, that could be anyone if you've experienced injustice, if you've experienced trauma so long, uh, your body, it forces you to do something, you lose hope. Yeah. You said something before too, which I, I mean, you, you talked about, you know, you're a guy, you're a statistics guy, because that's, that's your job, right? You study statistics. But the idea then of saying, one thoughtful way of looking at communities as actually just, and I found this very practical. I've never thought of doing this until you mentioned it. Step back and actually look at the trends of the things changing. Because I, I would say, yeah, I'll, I'll feel it out. And when I feel like there's a problem, maybe I'll look at it. But you can, you can intellectually look at this and simply just say, 
there's a changing population demographic right here. So if that trend continues, here are some problems that are going to come up. So that's, that's very practical. Yeah, yes. Uh, it's funny how many churches don't know. I mean, just general, people don't know the trends. Like trends of, so for example, Philadelphia is an interesting trend. Uh, in 2000, Philadelphia is still the African-American city, close to 40% African-American. However, the trend is Asian-American and Latinx Hispanic. Uh, that trend is like, we knew that was coming because of the population growth, uh, but now it's becoming more like quick. And for me, it's like, hey, we knew these things were happening. Uh, but some people are like, oh, I just wasn't aware that this population of ethnic group would start to be in my community. And if you think, if you think about Philadelphia and how the lines are, it's like a push out movement. If you were in Fairmount, which was Fairmount, if anyone knows, if you've ever been to Fairmount, uh, we see that young hipster. Fairmount wasn't a hipster spot. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, it was actually a, a Hispanic community hmm. that got pushed out. Uh, and then where'd they go? Up to North. Uh, now, up, so, like, the, the, there's trends out there that I think we can be good at and ask ourselves the question, especially if we're a college student and we're thinking about working in organizations or we just want to be marketable. Uh, the marketable thing to do is say, hey, to your supervisor, there's some shifting things happening. And for us to be marketable and survive, how can we get better at reaching other populations? Mm. Like, that's one of the things I think is just helpful in general. Yeah, let me ask you this. So I, was, I grew up in Northeast Philly. Mm -hmm. And uh, my wife and I were there up in about 2008. So we were there as this push was happening. Mm. And so when we first moved into our neighborhood, it was still primarily Jewish. Yep. Um, and of course it was changing because we were Gentiles and we were moving in. And, and by the time we left, uh, just on our block, uh, directly across the street, we had African-American neighbors. Uh, on the right side of us, we had Pakistani neighbors. On the other side, we had Indian neighbors. Uh, and in many cases, you say, who's my neighbor? Well, it's the person I share my wall and my ceiling and my floor with because when you live in a city, you can hear your neighbors. Yeah. You can smell what they're cooking for dinner. Sometimes that's good, sometimes that's bad. Damn. But, but I, I'm curious, what keeps us from being able to see the world through the eyes of our neighbors, especially when our neighbors are the other? So, you know, th there was a time in the Northeast, we were all the same. We were all blue collar, you know, working class, uh, you know, either you knew each other by which parish do you live in? You know, I was the weird guy. So well, I don't go to Catholic church. I don't know what the parish is. Right. But you, you know, so you, you knew the parish. You, so there was, a, but then all of a sudden you, you, your neighborhood just changed like that in the course of say 10 years of living on this block, it changed. What keeps us from being able uh, to see the world through the eyes of the other than us. Right. So that could be white people through black eyes, black people through. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm two things. Uh, thank you for the clarity because I, I like to remind people that we sometimes when we say what keeps we assume that it's white people that are the only people struggling to have healthy cross cultural interactions uh, with people, and that's not true uh, at all. Uh, and then second, I mean, simple answer is sin. <laughs> that's a cop out. That's too easy. Keep going. I got you. Uh, here's the reason. Here's what I would say. It's it's uncomfortable, and here's what I mean by uncomfortable. And also, no, you don't really receive a reward or some sort of uh, excitement when you have to, to interact with someone different than you. So I can go, the crazy part, of, even in Philadelphia, there are communities where literally you can go into it where it's an all Latino community. The store, the church, the college. The, like, so in a way, like, think about it. Why would I want to leave 
anywhere if I feel comfortable around people who act look like me and I feel safe around. Uh, there's black communities like that. There are Asian communities like that. I think the challenging part is, is there has to be a sense of conviction. I go back to, is God calling you to do that? Like, and, and then if God's calling you to do that, is God just calling you to speak up about, hey, this is beautiful, but this is not what heaven is going to look like uh, as a Christian. And then on another point, I have to tell my students this all the time that I teach. I say, I'm thankful. Like they say, I'm so happy I have an African-American professor. I'm saying, that's great. Uh, but my goal is to equip you so you can function in diverse settings. Because mm -hmm. if you're going to lead other people, you have to understand what they're going through, how they interact culturally, racially. Uh, just because the world outside of this college or this community is not homogeneous. Uh, and those are just the trends. In 2050, it's, it's going to be fascinating to see what the world looks like. And so our kids are going to see a diverse world. And the question is, are we equipping them to walk into that world? Yeah, and, that, and, that, and you've said that in, in, in a number of ways, because I know your job is also to help companies. In, and you said make yourself marketable, which sounds rather, um, I don't know, sounds rather capitalistic, right, in one sense. But, but I think there's practical wisdom there that if you're going, and you just said lead people, and we would think probably in more evangelical terms, minister to people. But all of that, what you're saying is how do we relate to other human beings, right? I mean, yeah. and if we, can't, if we don't take the time to learn how they're thinking, then we really can't relate to them or, and probably can't love them. Yeah, yeah. I, this is my motto. This is me. Some other people like, I, I think there's a sense of when Paul was going through his process and he talked about for the Jews, I became a Jew for the Gentile. There's this real process of what does that look like? He didn't say embrace all of the customs. Uh, that they do. However, there is a sense of, am I aware? Do I know some of the things that they're worshiping and how they're eating? And I feel like that's one of the things where embraces, we assume that to embrace, I have to give up everything. Right. Uh, I have to dive into the world. Uh, I should just be aware, like one of my favorite ones is a Bible in one hand and the Bible higher than the newspaper. Uh, <laughs> I should just know what's happening. So when I'm having conversations or I'm talking to my neighbor and and I look at my neighbor and I'm saying, hey, thank you for going. I hear you go every morning at seven o'clock out. Thank you for going into a place uh, where some people are not gonna go. Like, how does that make that person feel knowing that someone's aware of how they're living their life? And so it's hard just because it's, it's, it's hard for anyone to give up com being comfortable. Hmm. And I think in a place like, in, in an urban place like Philadelphia, you can't even say I have the Bible in one hand and, and the newspaper in the other. There are multiple newspapers and different communities read different, you know, so in other words, if I'm going to talk to the African-American community, I, I probably want to look at the Tribune, uh, yeah. you know, or if it's, uh, or the, I might really want to read the Daily News and the Inquirer, depending. Uh, yeah, and or, so I'm going to laugh. I'm going to laugh because it's funny because people ask me, like, I, I've learned how to survive as Af if you don't know, I'm African American. Uh, if, if people who listen didn't know that I'm African American, <laughs> for me to survive and, and thrive in, in in college, which I was in all my Bible class, I was the only person of color. Uh, there had to be a point where I had to start to understand and, and, and look at other theologians that weren't black, uh, the Tim Kellers, the John Pipers, the CS like. I, and I think it was interesting because no one ever asked a question like, oh you're doing that to help you learn how to interact with your professors. You're doing that to help you interact with your colleagues. But it was weird how no one ever came to me and said, hey, do you know mm. about this theologian of color? Hey, J.O., do you know? It was just so fasc fascinating because I just wanted one person. I wanted my professors to, to relate to me and say, 
hey, let's use a black theologian or a Latinx theologian. Uh, but I went through all of college not having the opportunity to get one theologian of color. Uh, and so I think about that. And how did that make me feel? Uh, mm. Did I feel welcome? Did I feel like my professors knew me? Uh, did I feel like my classmates knew me? Uh, no. And I just hope that that experience said made me feel, I don't want anyone to experience that. Just simple. I just thought it was uncomfortable. It was isolating. Uh, and I don't want my students to feel that. I don't want anyone to come into work that we work with and feel that type of way uh, and clock in and clock out. And so uh, I just think we just have to realize that these are real people who are trying to and get closer to God. And it's hard to do that when uh, sometimes getting closer to God means that no one's going to ask some questions about uh, their everyday life. Is there, is there another part to that, Joe? Because one of the things I'll say when I teach, I used to teach an intro course to LBC, and I'd say to students, you know, you're, you're the image of God, but you're one facet, right? And we really probably can't see Christ until we had all of God's people from all places and all times. Finally, that's the complete picture. That, that, and so you've got all of these different ways of understanding God. Aren't we really cutting out our own understanding of God? Mm-hmm. Simply choosing one avenue that is comfortable to the way we think. Yes. Uh, you hit... I, I would give you a hug, a dap right now. For that I'll time. take it, JL. <laughs> um, social distancing. Stay. I'm sorry. I'll put yeah, my yeah. Six feet. Yeah, just like, but that's the, that's the black Baptist in me. Still want to hug and interact with someone. But you hit on the head. I think there is a beautiful, for me, this is, this I say for me, I think there is a beautifulness. The more, even this conversation, let me see another image of God. Because uh, you, God speaks to you. God's in you. The Spirit's in you. Sometimes we, we, uh, are not aware of, of that. And so me and my wife went through that process where she sort of was like, oh, for her, it was a shocking to be like, if I didn't, if God did not bring me into your life, I would have not understood the beauty of African-American culture or even who God is and who you are. Uh, and she's white, uh, grew up in St. Louis uh, suburbs. Uh, but I think it's vice versa, the two-way street. Like I, I learned a lot from her, uh, but I genuinely just believe that. Like that's one of the things that I feel like my mom has raised me to believe in the posture of like, I just believe that the image of God is in, in, in everyone. And there are people that I feel like want to be a part of a bigger relationship and fellowship, however, have never just been asked. Like literally just have never been asked like, would you wanna come to this gathering? Would you wanna be a part of my team or this project? And most people who've been isolated, when you ask someone who's been isolated would say yes. Mm. They just need to be welcomed into the gathering, into the party. Mm. Yeah, that's great. I, I, that goes to something that I think has been repeated, Mark, and I don't know whether it's come up to you the way you've thought about this, is that, yeah, even in something that's a huge pandemic like this, we're always trying to think in these really massive terms. But what I keep hearing is that, yeah, there's there's probably right in front of us a lot of simple things, even asking someone. I, I think even you, you've said something like, you just, just talk to someone, ask them. And then the way you go out into your neighbor, it's a very simple thing to do is just to say, and I, it doesn't feel gargantuan. It doesn't feel like a mission that you're on. But yet, yet, if God is in control and God's commanding us to love our neighbor, then that's as much a fulfillment of his commands as, you know, going off to a mission field. Right? We've got these little ways in front of us to love our neighbor, um, which I find very encouraging because I, I think that retools us, right? Stop, stop looking for these massive things and just the way you said it the other day, look, look within. I think you actually said a five mile radius. I don't know if that's yeah. just five miles. Did you that's a up? Philly. No, that's Philly. I mentioned mine because it's like a Philly. Like most people haven't left a five mile radius okay. uh, in Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's something I thought I never thought in just even even if the even if the number is is you know random to give it a number to say I hadn't even thought of, of that like looking around me and asking inside the radius have I gone 
have I done anything to help anyone in that radius? That's a very practical thing, but it's a very loving thing, a way to actually look at my neighbors, you know, clearly. So I, I find that very helpful and practical. I think too, in Philly, you, in a city, sometimes you think those ways because you know, if I cross this street, I'm out of my zone, mm -hmm. right? Like if I stay on this side of Roosevelt Boulevard, it's white Catholic guys. I go on that side of Roosevelt Boulevard, it's Latino guys, right? So you know, it's very clear that's a different block, right? And, and, and you, the only time you go over there is when you play them in, in an organized sports game. I mean, yes. that's separated. <laughs> and, and you're laughing, but you know, you know what I'm getting at. Um, but the interesting thing, though, I think, too, that some of getting to know your neighbor is easier, I think, I feel, as someone who's lived in the city, uh, lived in the suburbs, and now live in a rural area, it's much easier for, was much easier for me to engage my neighbor in the city because in this on a night like tonight we'd be sitting out on the stoop yes and and so and i you've heard me say this before dan growing up in a jewish neighborhood i learned about the holocaust not from a book i learned it from my literally the person who shared a wall with my family's house mr levy and when we would sit out at night he told me his story um you know he would tell me his story or and as the neighborhood changed I was finding out from my, my Pakistani neighbor how the Pakistani news in, in Pakistan was reporting on the 2008 election. Yeah. Like that's inside information. And, and, and so I think it's, it's a much, there's, there's another step we need to take when we live separated like this. And, and, yeah. and, but one of the things I wanted to ask you, Julia, to help us think through is this, is that Right now, we are in a time, we mentioned 1968, but we're in another time where we are so polarized. Uh, we've polarized the virus. You know, there's now like, you know, I've seen a statistic recently, you know, that, you know, 75% uh, uh, Democrats are more likely to wear a mask than Republicans or something like that. I mean, which I just thought was fascinating, right? So help us think through this negotiation. So we're, we're here we are, we're citizens of the kingdom of God, and God has us providentially in the kingdom of man, in the city of man, in the neighborhood of man, that is very polarized. Yeah. And, and on top of it, is becoming more and more diverse by the day. Yeah. How do we take our, our catechism from the kingdom of God and operate in the kingdom of man with those variables that were staring us in the face. Because you're doing this on a regular basis, and it's not often that we get to talk to somebody who actually consults churches in thinking through these ideas. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna say something like, I, I wish I was the person that's like, oh, I, I developed this. Uh, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, uh, I, I love, and I said, I love the book of Acts. Uh, and here's why, just because some of the same exact issues and things we're going through what some of the, the early churches were going through. Mm -hmm. uh, and racial differences, uh, family differences, uh, ethnic differences, traditional differences. Uh, and so the question I, I like to remind Christians to remind, at least I remind myself is, when I'm coming into these conversations, do I have, my, is my posture believing that this person's made in the image of God? And, mm -hmm. and then the second thing I'm thinking about is, Lord, what are you teaching me mm -hmm. in this process? Not what are you teaching another person? Because typically, most of the time, it's really not the other person. It's me. I'm frustrated. I'm mad. Uh, I'm questioning. Uh, I think in this day and age, we can 
sometimes we, we use, and these are good at not saying they're bad excuses. Uh, I think it honestly just tells me when I'm going through them, like, I, I, this is a part of, of walking alongside people that are different than, than me. Uh, as Christians, I'm all right. I mean, I don't expect everyone to vote the way I vote, dress the way I dress, eat the way I eat. Uh, I do expect in some ways us to, to remember that we're, we're, we're Christian first. So I'm not, hear me, I'm not a black, uh, hipster, young uh, Christian. That's not my order of, of identity. Like I'm a Christian first, and sometimes I feel like we put other things before being a Christian. Uh, we put our political views, we put our finances. Uh, and so that's what I'm saying, like, I should be able to have a conversation uh, in a respectful way and dialogue with someone from a different political party, someone with different worldviews uh, than myself, eats different than me just because I know that the world in right now to say is going to be that. And the world was that when Jesus Christ was in the back of you, it was diverse, uh, acts was diverse. And so I just don't want to get caught up in like how to not to do that, but like do it. It's uncomfortable. Step into it. One of the practical things you can do is pray. If you're about this, pray and say, Lord, uh, I know I go through my day and if someone's going to be at work, someone's at my church, you won't agree with me. Uh, give me the posture to listen, love, and, and understand them and not to try to change them. That's brilliant. And I, you know, the, the funny thing about the acts too, is that the different populations, you're right, cultural tradition, familial, but they also were, they also thought they had a beat on, on their Christianity or religion, right? So the Jews have, have got anchored in. And, and so we've religified, if I can use the term, make it up. Those of us with PhDs, I guess we get to do that once in a while, religifying, right? These, these identities. And I, I think that's, you're right. That's a great point because that's what's happened here, right? We've, We've religified a religious right or, or a left, and now it's not just politics, but it's the only way to be as a Christian. And I, you know, I like I like your posture in saying the first thing you ask is, how do I need to change? It seems to me that's we don't do anything like that. Not 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 only racially, but we don't do it across polit politics or anything in this culture. Yeah. Every week, every week, every other week, I meet with a, a gentleman who, when I used to work for Young Life, he was my top donor. Uh, top donor gave a, over a million dollars a year. Uh, I meet with him. He is 78 years old. He is not from the city. He goes to a Presbyterian church <laughs> outside the city. Uh, we met together for two years. And in this relationship, it's so fascinating just because uh, in this relationship, we've had a lot of conversations, but things didn't change until we started to be honest and we started to have uncomfortable conversations. And, mm -hmm. I, and I had to talk to him about stuff. He had to talk to me about stuff. And I say that just because uh, the incident that just happened, he texted me yesterday and said, my heart is broken. Uh, and I'm thankful that we get to walk in this together, but that you've been vulnerable uh, and giving me the grace to understand. Because when I used to hear these experiences of what's happening with certain ethnic or racial groups, I would Literally. always firstly go to facts or say, okay, well, you know, that doesn't affect me. Uh, and he was like, through our relationship, I realized that like, as a Christian, I should, I should have a posture of listening. I should have a heart of lamenting and caring about my brothers and sisters. Uh, and so I just think sometimes it can be that simple. Zoom call with your close friend that's different than you and start to have a conversation. Uh, ask your coworker at work, uh, hey, you might, this might be a hard conversation for you to have, but I would love to just hear how I can care for you better while this is going through. Like, it's not that hard to ask people who are hurt how they're doing, but it's uncomfortable because we're uncomfortable with it because we don't want them to call us out, uh, call us a bad name or us to get rejected they say i don't want to talk to you about that well you said you've said before too that the the idea is we, we need to we need to be able to make some mistakes and i i think that 
you know, they're yeah, being, being white and, and dealing with some of these from my own perspectives, there's a lot of eggshells. I'm always nervous. Am I saying this wrong? I don't want to, I want to listen. I want to understand, but I don't want to offend at the same time. And I think that the, the idea of, of saying there's going to be some mistakes, it's okay. You're, you're going to miss on this from time to time, as long as you come at it with a repentant heart or willingness to learn and listen. But, but we need that freedom, right, to be able to make some mistakes like that. In the Bible. I mean, let's be honest. No one's perfect. We make mistakes daily. Uh, and there's grace. And there's forgiveness. Uh, and there's reconciliation through that process. And I think, Dan, where the space where we should be able to do that is in the church. Right. Bingo. Um, because in the culture today, Dan, you and I have talked about this, and we talked a little bit of this offline with Jail, but we have such a zero-sum game that's being played, right? Mm -hmm. That, um, you, you know, everybody wants to virtue signal. So, you know, if, yes. if, if, if your employee does something that goes viral, get rid of them. You know, whether they're on saw. the job or not. Which right? we just saw. Yeah. We just saw that. Yeah. And it'd be really interesting, too, what if the police officer in, in Minneapolis, mm. I don't know, what if, you know, he's listening to a sermon and he repents? Is there space in our culture for that guy to say, yes, I'm going to take my sentence, yeah. uh, but I am repentant. I, I am going to ask the family for forgiveness. Would the culture... Would social media then say, wow, or would the culture say, hey, we don't care, throw away the key, let this guy rot in jail. We want our ounce of flesh. And the gospel's really the only way you get true reconciliation. And, and, and because in our culture, we have lots of justice talk, but it's wrapped up and it feels this very polarized zero-sum game and 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 social and, and, and the, the virtue signaling i mean that is a that's an that should be an olympic sport now um but and social media makes it so happy but i, I really think you know if in the church you know i, I think of the the, uh, the people we talked from ecuador uh the guy who was responsible for killing jim elliott actually became a believer mm. you know and there was genuine reconciliation and genuine healing yeah. And, and, and I think, Dan, you made such a great point offline that when we look at Dr. King, Dr. King was as concerned about saving the white population as the black yeah. population. Yes. Um, yes. And how do we make that? I don't expect that to happen in Manhattan and D.C., but I think I do expect that to happen in my church. Yes. Um, I just want to echo that is the hit. You hit on the head when it comes to this, even the concept of having conversations. Uh, we're scared and was, it's not a safe environment. And sometimes we see what the world is and that affects the church so much. Mm -hmm. You have broken people, once again, broken people in church, but they're not talking about their brokenness and, mm -hmm. they're, and they're hiding, which is not what the church is, is supposed mm -hmm. to. That's like me hiding my, my brokenness from God when I sin. That's the first person I should go to. Right. It's, it's coming in because I know he wants to do. So I think as a church, it's hard just because in this conversation of mistakes, we don't want to, I'll put it like this. I'd rather have someone do the reconciliation process and there's a place of repentance and an opportunity. That doesn't mean you won't have to deal with the consequences. Right. I think we assume that it's like, oh, you're just back to normal. No, there's still consequences. But there also is the process of you can come back into this and that might not be in leadership. You might lose your job, but you're still welcome. And I feel like the church, hmm. we haven't displayed that enough hmm. in a lot of ways because we're still scared to say we made mistakes what happened 300 years ago 400 years ago 
what we do when it comes to not speaking up about topics because we're assuming that uh, we, we care about what the culture is going to say to us, not what the what God's going to say to us about. That's what you still should do. Yeah, and then what's the goal there? And I think that the goal is not redemption. And I think, Mark, you said it. The gospel is the only thing we have that makes sense of this. And that, like you're saying, JL, yeah, there's consequences. Those are real. But in a sense, the consequences are a sanctifying process, right? I mean, if you've done something to hurt someone, that person may forgive you and love you, but the consequences are now a sanctifying process where God is weeding sin out of my life. And I think this is why the church, and go back to your point about the church, Mark, is that even Calvin had a very high view of church discipline, that you kick someone, you remove someone from the church so that through that terrible process, God would redeem you back into the church. It's not, but, but again, without the vocabulary of the gospel and the, and the common culture, I don't know how you get to this language and it, it doesn't seem like there's any space for it. Because we have lots of, we have lots of, uh, social justice and in many ways I, I think a lot of the social justice language we hear in our culture uh, i think tim keller has put this well it, it really is christian-ish language it's it's yeah. the product of post-christianity right. uh, it's, it's if we were a truly a pagan culture you wouldn't hear some of the, this language and that's fair that that's a fair some of the way it's framed uh, is framed with Christian language, but it's kind of like the Prince's Pride. It's like that word doesn't mean what you think that it means, you know, and yeah. it means yeah. something very different. Yeah, it does. It does, which is the oxy, like, and I'll speak, it's funny because I'm in these conversations, and when I'm in this, when I'm in a Christian circle, I'm in these conversations about race uh, differences. My The posture is so different because it's an oxymoron if I'm a Christian saying, that, hey, I'm not going to forgive you, Mark. <laughs> no, I'm not going to forgive you. Yeah, yeah. But what? Like, I can't say that because literally it says like, hey, forgive. it's been given to me. And it says, Lee, like, forgive your brothers. And I think it's interesting because I'm like, how do you do that well? Because we assume forgiveness means there's no reconciliation. There's not so of a, a restorative practice of, Mark, here's how you hurt me. Can we talk about this? Can we reconcile? We just assume forgiveness means, all right, peace you later. You can just act like nothing had happened. I think right. that's one of the things with the gospel that's so beautiful is that we, there's this tension that we experience of like someone had to deal with our sacrifices of us falling short for our sins and we're forgiven, but that's not like we're saying, well, Jesus died from a cross, died from a cross. I'm gonna just act like it didn't happen. It's still that tension. You have to go like, how do you, you're getting sanctified through this process. And so I, I wish we had churches that, and, and that's black, brown. I wish we had churches that are willing to say, we're going to create that space to, to allow people to ask questions, to allow people to share the brokenness and restore them into as best as possible until they get to heaven keep restoring them because uh, that's what's happening with us that's beautiful let me ask what we're we're way over our hour but yeah. i can do some i can do this looks like this is going to be a part one and part two um, uh, which i'm fine with jail help me help dan and i and, and again this is something that our faculty is listening to our schools listening to how do we even teach and, and, and manage our classrooms in a way at a place like LBC where it's possible you may have nobody of color in the classroom or you may have, I've had classes where I've taught where I've had one Latina and one African-American person. Um, and so how do we teach in a way to begin helping our students think through some of the things we're talking about here? Yeah, uh, I like Tim Keller. Someone mentioned, I like Tim Keller because he says, Anytime I'm preaching at a, a, a predominantly white church, I have to always have Tim Keller. John Piper, Tim Keller, like, you're going to get some hand, you're gonna get some hand claps. Yeah, uh, 
But Tim Keller says, closest you'll get to an amen from a Presbyterian <laughs> is if you quote Keller. Yeah. yeah. Is it is it writing quick? That's good. Uh, yeah. mm -hmm. That's, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Tim Keller says something so profound when he said, uh, "Preach, don't wait to preach when you have diversity of the demographic. You want to preach that now, uh, and not wait for it." And I think the same thing with teachers, professors. I'll give you a practical example of what I did. When I looked at my material, it's easy. I could have taught cross-cultural diversity from a Black experience and only found Black people. Uh, every week for the six weeks, except two of the weeks, we bring in different racial ethnic groups to present for the whole class, and they have to do a study on different ethnic and racial groups. That's important to me that even though I, some classes I've had only Black individuals in them, and in some stats, Class I've had like a white person, only one white person with 12 black people, that they still need to see diversity in understanding the gospel and, and the kingdom. Uh, I think as professors, one of my only, because you do have intellectual property, you do have those things I know professors are like, uh, no, I want the freedom and stuff. I think one of the things we do not well is that when you have students go through their undergrad and they say, you know, I've never had, my professor never gave me a theologian of color. My professor, and, and it's weird because I'm like, Dang, like in my head, I'm like, dang, that's interesting because I don't, I've never had a, a person of color as a theologian. But what's fascinating is that your professor is supposed to educate you for the world. Mm. <laughs> that's your professor's job. So for me, when I was a junior, I went to my professors and I said, I said, you're not preparing me to go into a world of diversity. I need you. And literally when I said that, they, cha they changed their whole syllabi up and started to add things in there because they, they, it was true. It was true because I told them this, the demographics are changing. And I think we as professors have to be willing to say, are we, are we teaching and equipping our students to deal with populations, uh, just diverse populations? Uh, and so I think in a syllabi, you should at least have maybe 20% of some diversity in there if it's reading the articles, sermons, uh, other theologians, uh, just because it makes your students more aware of the kingdom of God too and how there are other theologians that, uh, that maybe preach different or think different, but also that are part of the family. Yeah, that's good. And it's tough, I think, in, in specifically theological circles, because you're trying to teach what you believe to be accurate. So you've got a set of doctrines you want to teach. And then you say, well, I'm going to teach to be to what I believe is accurate, and I'm going to rely on the theologians I like, but now I'm going to also just expose you. And we've, we've wrestled, and Mark and I have wrestled at LBC, what are we doing when we teach students? Why, why are we educating them? And we want them to know things, we also want them to be humble. Uh, we want them to be wise. We want them to be exposed to things they weren't exposed to before. And I think with those values, you know, to your point, then am I actually teaching them what I think is a right way to think at the same time, exposing them to other ways of thinking so they realize, and I've said to students, guys, if you think I'm all right, you're all wet. There's, there's no way I'm all right about this. I'm one guy, you know, so I'm, I'm giving you the best of what I got, but I, I have to introduce you to people that think differently than me and then go, here's where I think they're wrong, but yeah. I'm, I'm one person. So I, I like the idea. And I think exposure, I don't know if Mark, if that gets out of previous conversations, but. It does. And I, I think too, um, even if it's not necessarily, uh, if you look at, you can only require so much reading. I'm learning that. <laughs> and Require uh, as much as you want, Mark. I know. Yeah. 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 Well, if I want it to get read, uh, but, but, but what, what Dan and I have learned, and I do like this idea, is why not expose our students to other points of views through mediums like what we're doing? Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, what does it mean to, say, teach a class on, you know, the American Revolution? Uh, and in one of the sessions, you, you bring in someone like J.L. to say, Joe, help us think about 
this from a different perspective or, or something like that. Um, we were doing a hiring. The reason why I'm saying is because I'm just trying to, it's very practical. In my head, it gets very practical. We were hiring a staffer from Philadelphia. Here's what I, I took a faculty from the main campus and said, hey, can you be a part of the hiring process in the city campus? Mm. Uh, they were like, hey, I've never been asked to do that. And then someone from the city campus was like, why? And I was like, because it makes it better, a diverse perspective. Uh, and they still understand the concept of higher education. I, mm. I mean, they don't understand everything about the city and some of the complexities. And so I think sometimes it, it could be small. It could be, hey, I have a friend uh, that goes to my church and I'm going to have him sort of share. Uh, those are the things I think sometimes it doesn't have to be big. Like you have to be able to find a whole book. Uh, like it could be interactions. Could be like, hey, we're going to go somewhere to see how other groups worship. And we're going to sit there uh, and process this and have a dialogue about it. Uh, that's one of the things I feel like sometimes as businesses, they get caught up in like the biggest impact. I'm like, just do the small things, uh, challenge your students, help them critically think about these things so that when someone asks them to look at a new theologian, they won't say, nah, that person's not biblically sound. Uh, what does that mean, biblically sound? Let's talk about that a little bit, please, to your students. Well, that, and that's something that I think, I think we, we need to do a better job. I mean, there's a lot of things we need to do a better job at, but one of the things we need to do a better job for students, I think, in education is to be able to teach them that the, one of the reasons they're here is to be unsettled. Like, education is a very unsettling process. And I, I've had students say, I want to go on to grad school. And I say, unless you're willing to just full <laughs> of humility every day, don't go to grad school. It's, it's very challenging to find that everything you thought you knew about things is now off. And you've got to grapple with scholars who are smarter than you, disagree, and it, it's hard. But but I, I think it's probably one of the greatest values. Is that I'm, and I say to students, I'm not, and I say to them, I don't want you to agree with me today. You write an essay at the end, you say, I think you're all wet, Professor Spencer, that's fine. But you have to listen to something outside of yourself and another opinion. And I, I think that changes the point of education, that it's not just about building skills. And that's true. we got to do that. But it's also about just making you more human. And more human, as I say to students, I think one of the big problems we have is that we've got our, we're out of scale. Like, mm. each of us is yeah. like 20 feet tall in our minds. Once you, the more you learn, on the size, you know. Well, and you know, too, Dan, we've talked about this, and and Jay, I'd like to hear your thought on this. Maybe the way we we move forward in some of this is that we, as the faculty, are modeling some of yeah. the ideas that. Just, so I, I have a funny story. I, I was teaching not at LBC at a different school, not even in this state. So, uh, and uh, a Christian student came to me and said, "My professor's making me read this book. Can you believe this?" And it was, it was James Cone's book, uh, Black Theology. Yeah. And I said, uh, and, and so he said, can you believe I have to read this? And I turned around and pulled my copy off the shelf. <laughs> and, and he said, you read this? And I said, well, yeah. And he said, oh, well, you know, I don't think this guy's legit. And I was like, well, you know, first read the book. Yeah. And... And then, and at that time, I actually handed him Bruce Field's book. I said, then read this. And, and so I think there's a modeling we can do. And I think all of a sudden, the, the, a bit of the uh, resistance mm. that that student was feeling went down because it's like, okay, someone I respect is reading this and can process this with me. And then we actually had a really good conversation after he finished the work, yeah. uh, which is, I think, another part has to happen. Yeah, that is so profound because I think sometimes as leaders, we forget that people are watching us, especially young minds. And the same thing in our household. Like what we do, our kids are watching, even if we don't realize they're watching and vice versa if we're teaching or leading. 
and the the kid the fact you had it you didn't have to you had it you pulled it and you could allow this kid to critically think and say okay let me think because if two people are saying read this then there must be something in here that I, that they want me to learn most people i've interact can't even go to the pulling they're like well there's not just any uh there's not anything out of a out of 100 percent of what you believe you can't find someone that believes 50 percent of what you believe maybe and pull just that section out yeah mm. yeah yeah well, that's, that's, and then you're right, Mark. That's something as faculty, as teachers, as leaders, wherever we are. And I, so for the students listening or the, or the young people listening, you know, forget that everyone's watching you. You're on social media. You're connected to other places. The way you talk, the way you think, the way you treat other people is instructive for how people can be treated. So, and I think that's a, that's a good call, not just for us as faculty, but for, for us as humans. And as Christians, primarily, as you said, Joe, that's our first identity. So. Yeah. And I think, as, I think as, as a, from a reform perspective, we've thrown a bunch of reform uh, com people around here. The idea of common grace really does give me a sense of freedom to say, you know what, I can sit and read this person. I might not agree with 90% of it. Yeah. Uh, but because of common grace, there might be 10 to 20% of, of something in this book that I really need to hear. Yeah. Um, Mark, and, back to what you're saying, and that's mostly who you who interact with outside of COVID. Ninety percent of the people you interact with, you probably won't hmm. agree with, but that does not mean we should not interact with them. And and they come into the church now. And we say, hey, you're a Christian, but I don't want to interact with you because. But the ten percent is pretty important. If if you're a Christian, like you believe in Jesus, I believe. Okay, that's actually more important than the other. We're fighting over the ninety. Okay, y'all can fight over the ninety. God's sort of saying like, yo, that's your brother or your sister now. So yeah. don't forget that like that's more important than the 90% of the, you dress different. You, you like this theolo theolo theologian. Okay, but I still, you're still my brother and sister in Christ. Yeah. I think that's the mic drop. I, I don't think we can top that. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, thank you, JL. This has been thank a fabulous you. This was awesome. I yeah. enjoyed you taking the time with us and helping thank us. You. Yeah. Well, like I said, this is fun. Uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, it's, it's a gift. I, I wish more of these types of conversations, not just heady, but practical would happen more because I think we would see a different world in a different church. Good, good call. Well, we'll and we'll have them again. I, I think this has been very helpful for me. So yeah, grateful. Mm -hmm.